The scripture reading today comes from the book of Acts, chapter 8, verses 26 to 40. Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, Rise and go toward the south, to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert place. And he rose and went. And there was an Ethiopian, a eunuch, a court official of Kandasi, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all her treasure. He had come to Jerusalem to worship and was returning, seated in his chariot, and he was reading the prophet Isaiah. And the spirit said to Philip, go over and join this chariot. So Philip ran to him and heard him reading Isaiah the prophet and asked, do you understand what you are reading? And he said, how can I, unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. Now the passage of the scripture that he was reading was this, like a sheep, he was led to the slaughter. And like a lamb before its shearer is silent, so he opens not his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation? For his life is taken away from the earth. And the eunuch said to Philip, About whom, I ask you, does the prophet say this? About himself or about someone else? Then Philip opened his mouth, and beginning with this scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. And as they were going along the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, See, here is water. What prevents me from being baptized? And he commanded the chariot to stop, and they both went down into the water, Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. And when they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord carried Philip away, and the eunuch saw him no more, and went on his way rejoicing. But Philip found himself at Azotus, and as he passed through, he preached the gospel to all the towns until he came to Caesarea. This is the word of the Lord. I became a Christian in my early 20s. And in my own story, the process involved me spending a lot of time by myself reading the Bible, trying to hammer out questions. And I probably really would have been helped if I connected with the church. But I had some stereotypes about what Christians are like, most of which wound up not to be true. Um, But... But I wasn't eager to connect with the church, and so in that process, I I visited churches a couple of times, and I felt like I didn't belong. Uh, I understood most of what was going on, but there was one church I went to one time that they were singing a song where I didn't know where the words were, and and I just felt like I probably stood out. People would notice this guy doesn't know the song, and because I was filled with questions that on the one hand I wanted the answers to, but my fear was that I wouldn't have the space to figure it out on my own, I thought by standing out, I may be a target for people who wanted to indoctrinate me. Um, and so, so I stayed away from church. And even after I made the step into faith, I still was cautious about the church. And eventually I got plugged in um, and realized that it, the church really is a great context to grow and to hammer things out and that you, in a healthy church, have freedom to ask questions. But I wound up uh, um, not long after connecting with the church at at a big enough church that that at that point I wanted to get connected, but didn't know how church worked and had trouble navigating it. And so so I had this experience of of liking the church, valuing the church, benefiting, but also feeling disconnected, a little bit of an outsider. Uh, And then over the years, now as a pastor, I understand how churches should work, but I still have my moments of disconnection. But people are different, and, and some of you really feel comfortable in the church. It's, it's, it's where you feel most at home. Some of you, it's an ongoing struggle in more extreme ways. And, and, 
And yet the, the reasons on both sides could be various. So for example, for people who feel really comfortable at church, there could be good reasons for that, but there also could be questionable reasons. It's possible that, that somebody really feels fully themselves, fully at home within Christian community because of their faith, because of their love for God. And that's so focused that, that even the imperfections of people and the way the church works and, and whatever challenges there are, uh, they're there, they're real, but they don't overshadow the goodness. And so, so a lot of people really feel they, they really grow, they love the church. Uh, now, on the other hand, there could be negative reasons for being somebody who really feels at home and loves the church. Perhaps you just uh, grew up in the church or you've been around church long enough that you're so comfortable in Christian community that you figured out how to be yourself in a way that now you know that if, if there's problems, you, you know how to mask them. And if you want to avoid certain things, you can avoid them. And, and actually, the, 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 the outside world is more threatening to you, that you sort of fear if you go out with your coworkers, they might ask you questions that you don't have the answers for. And so church is simply a place where you won't be challenged. Now, now that comfort in church is, is not meant to be our comfort. And so being comfortable at church is good, um, but how does that work? Now, on the opposite side, some people have a struggle with church, and there could be understandable reasons for that, um, but also personally problematic reasons. For example, none of us are perfect, and church is meant to be a place where we're encouraged to grow, but some of us, we don't want to grow. We're, we're either um, lazy about challenging ourselves or... There are problematic areas, immoral areas, that, that we don't want to change. We still want, we, we, we get some joy, some delight, and so we, we bury it, we hide it, we lie about it, we cover it up. But inadvertently, if you do that, at some point, something's not going to work, and you may not know why, and you may feel that Christians are judgmental, and, and they're not. They're just speaking about things that, that you're feeling convicted about. On the other hand, because the church gathers imperfect people and we're trying to encourage one another to grow, if we're not all diligent in growing, we create a context where there is hypocrisy and therefore some people will struggle in the church because they're dealing with judgmentalism. They, they, they feel judged because they are being judged. And that's a problem. That's one of the reasons we need to be diligent as a church about being faithful. And so all of us are going to have these mixed experiences, some more in one direction than the other. Some will, will really love the church, but struggle at times. Some will struggle a lot, but hopefully have encouraging times. But we need to be growing. And we're in this series about redemptive stories. We're, we're looking for five weeks at individuals in the Bible who encounter God and the trajectory of their lives are changed. And so, so God does something redemptive in their lives. But we're also taking a moment to look at how their story connecting with the bigger story of God is not just about them, but one of the redeeming factors is that they've been brought into something bigger, but also God is using them in the context of something bigger. Today we're looking at a guy uh, who we know as the Ethiopian eunuch. And we're going to look at his story. And when we look at what God is doing in his story, we, we can note a number of things. And then I think uh, the hope for churches, if we are God-centered, if, if it's clear that God is seen more than us, then while we're working out our imperfections, there's, there's hope. And the, the story of the Ethiopian eunuch is a story of somebody who, who was an outsider and, and, and sought to draw near, but, but in this redemptive moment that we've heard read, uh, there's a radical change. And so we want to know, well, what is God doing here? Because if we see what God is doing, that will help us. Uh, and so um, 
there are four things we're going to look at today. Uh, God seeks the seeker. God reveals to the questioner. God connects to the disconnected. And God sends joy to a people. So let's begin with God seeking the seeker. One of the things that we note about this particular individual is that even though he's an outsider, he's from a different nation, different people, uh, he's heard of the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and, and he, he seems to go at lengths, traveling to Jerusalem to worship, um, studying the Bible, reading the book of Isaiah, and grappling with questions. And so this is a story about somebody who's fervently, actively seeking. But what we note is that on his own, he's not able to find God. He's, he's trying to make sense of things, and, and I suspect that taps into our experience. Uh, we do what we can, but life is filled with with challenges. Sometimes we can't get the answer. Sometimes we can't get connected. Uh, sometimes there are all sorts of things that hinder us. Uh, here's a guy who it seemed was fulfilling Jesus's uh, promise without maybe having heard it from Jesus. Seek and you will find. And here's somebody who's seeking, but but we know that the way that that things work, if you're familiar with the Bible, is that, that while we are called to be persistent in seeking, because we don't know the secret things God is doing, we only know ourselves, and, and we we may have a sense God's showing us something, even if we don't know it's God or we don't know what's happening, but we're stirred spiritually. And, and we do what we can, but at the end of the day, um, God is always going to be the one that has to be the actor because there's, there, there's a, a quote by a woman named Mary Lacuna. I'm paraphrasing it, I forget, but, but the idea is that God always finds us because anything that we find, if we find it on our own, would not be God. Uh, in our struggle to understand, we, we want answers. And, and if we get to the point where we have it all figured out, we don't have God, we have an idol. And so the story is always that we are seeking. And yet once we get connected, it's because God has sought us. And that's what we see in this passage. Uh, verse 26, the, the, the story begins, An angel of the Lord said to Philip, Rise and go towards the south to the road <clears throat> that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. <clears throat> this is a desert place. So, so God sends Philip, the deacon, to speak to this man, in that little note, that last, that last phrase, this is a desert place. Reminder in, in English spelling, uh, how, how important it is to be able to spell words, dessert, does it have one S or two S's? Uh, if it has two S's, it would be a dessert place. And so that would be the nature of my ministry. Let's go preach the gospel, but first, let's stop and have a piece of cake. And that's largely why I'm ineffective. Uh, if Philip was not being sent to a, to a dessert place, he was sent to a desert place, and, and one of the things, at least, that that signals is that this is not a place Philip on his own would have gone. In, in Philip's travel, he would not have gone into the wilderness. And so this is not a story about uh, the church's plan for outreach. This is not a story about Philip and his brilliance. This is a story about God pursuing a particular individual and using Philip to go. And so verse 27, there was an Ethiopian. There's a description of him. He had come to Jerusalem to worship. So the, the, so the, the, the Ethiopian comes. But then verse 29, the spirit said to Philip, go over and join this chariot. So he seems to be moving on the way home. Go over. He's sent by God. Verse 39, when they came up out of the water, the spirit of the Lord carried Philip away and the eunuch saw him no more. So Philip is really important in this story. But actually, it's not a story about Philip. It's a story about God calling this individual whom he wants as his own, whom he loves. And so, so here's a seeker, but we find that the, the one who seeks and the one who saves is God himself. That's important in this story. 
God pursues uh, this eunuch. And so in our own lives, there's encouragement because, first of all, some of us uh, feel compelled. How do I go out and speak to others? And you think you have to have the right thing to say and you need to have a good plan. And sure, to the degree that it's up to you, do all that you can. Um, but when you pray, you know that, that, that this is not our work. This is God's work in the lives of people and we're God's servants. Be encouraged to do it. But even in our own lives, because this is a, a time period where maybe people who know little about Christianity, Christianity are asking the deep questions. But in the church, I think a lot of us are starting to feel like we're non-Christian in the sense that we're feeling spiritually dry. We're, 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 we're not making sense of things. And what we're told is, but don't give up. Keep, keep seeking after God. Read the scriptures. Draw near. And yet we feel powerless. And what we're told is, is keep coming and be patient. Um, God seeks after those who are his. And so don't get discouraged. But, but do what you can and wait on the Lord. And uh, we don't know how long this Ethiopian has been grappling it. He at least, however long it took to travel to Jerusalem, um, but it could be years. But what we know is in this great moment, God is faithful. And so let's be encouraged that when we're God-centered, that while we're still figuring things out, we don't feel connected, um, God seeks after us. Here's the second thing. God reveals to the questioner. So, one of the things that this individual is grappling with is questions. He's reading the Bible and he doesn't understand it. I sort of thought myself, I was filled with questions, was excited about seminary, wanting to answer all my questions, answered a lot of questions. I thought three years of schooling uh, would answer all my questions. And I find that now, you know, nearly 20 years out of school, I think. No, 17. Um, I still read the Bible and I think I have no idea what this is talking about. Lord, help me. Um, uh, there's something destabilizing about that. It isn't faith based on my knowing what's true? And, and yet, here's this guy who's seeking God, but he's got questions, and, and God shows kindness, working redemptively in his life to send somebody to explain things. And so that's one of the roles Philip uh, portrays. And so in verses 30 to 31, Philip ran to him and heard him reading Isaiah the prophet and asked, do you understand what you're reading? And he said, how can I unless someone guides me? And, and, and that is how most of us encounter the Bible. How do I understand this unless somebody guides me? And uh, so here, the spirit of God is going to be the guide to the eunuch in the word. But, but, he, but God uses a human being who has the spirit and knows the word. And so uh, he's, verses 34 and 35, the eunuch, this is his question to Philip, about whom, I ask you, does the prophet say this, about himself or someone else? And then Philip opened his mouth, and beginning with the scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. And, and Luke, who wrote the Gospel of Luke, writes the book of Acts, and this, this is familiar. The end of Luke, Luke 24, Jesus appears to disciples who don't recognize him, and they're grappling to make sense of things. And, and Jesus explains from the scripture how the scriptures bear witness to him and how he fulfills all things. And here's the eunuch trying to make sense of Isaiah. And Isaiah, like the rest of the Hebrew Bible, only makes sense once it comes together in Jesus. And so anyone reading the Bible won't understand it until you learn the redemptive story. And so Philip, beginning with that scripture, explains to him the good news about Jesus and answers the question, which is actually a really good question. My question would be, uh, you know, what people is this about? The servant in Isaiah is Israel. And yet Israel, Isaiah says, is failing. So who is this servant? Is it the prophet or is it someone else? Well, it was somebody else. It was Jesus. 
And that begins this conversation where his questions are answered. Um, and, you know, here again, we find God's redemptive work. Try, how do you make sense of things? Well, well, he sends Jesus, not simply the teacher to explain things, but Jesus who fulfills things. And the good news, once we understand the meaning of his ministry, his suffering, his death, his resurrection, his ascension, the promise of his coming, um, that right there is more than we can grasp in our minds. But we, we go to the scriptures in the spirit and with the community, and God works redemptively in our lives. We bring our questions to God, and those three go together, and you need all three. If you, if you just study the word apart from the spirit, uh, you could be in a religion department at a university, and, and, and the Bible will help you with a lot of anthropology and sociology and learning about uh, religion, but it, it won't give you life if you're just studying it as a book. Or you could have the spirit where, where you feel emotionally free and you're, you're trying to process your emotional life religiously, but if it's not contained or constrained or pointed, you, you just wind up going on with, with your feelings and not growing. Um, Christian community is meant to be a community of the word and spirit, uh, where we help one another. We open the Bible and we instruct one another and we pray. And we see that here. How did God work in this remarkable way in the Ethiopian's life? Well, in a way that's part of the normal pattern afterwards, which is he sends people. The spirit sends people to open the word and explain things. And God works in other ways. You hear of God visiting people in far off places in their dreams. It's not the only way, but it's the ordinary way, which means if we are to be a community, that really helps work redemptively in the lives of ourselves and one another. We need to be a community focused on the word and spirit. And the community is important because as we read the Bible, we go with our questions and say, I can't make sense of that. And we could be corrected or we could correct others. But the goal is that we would uh, see the ministry of Jesus in the gospel. And so God reveals to the questioner. Now, here's a third way God works redemptively in the life of the eunuch. God connects the disconnected. And maybe this taps to a bigger theme of, of what's unique about the eunuch in the book of Acts, or at least it takes shape uniquely. Uh, the eunuch, uh, he's from Ethiopia, and you know, one of the problems we, we read these days is, is we have modern geography, and so there's a country today, Ethiopia, has a fascinating religious history tied into the Bible. Um, but he was likely from what would be modern-day Sudan. Um, but again, it, this was written 2,000 years ago, and you hear of other Ethiopians within Scripture, uh, the guy who, tell, who calls uh, Jeremiah out of the pit, or the Queen of Sheba. She probably came from Yemen. Uh, so so, so what, did, what did Ethiopia mean 3,000 years ago? What did it mean 2,000 years ago? Not exactly modern geography, but certainly that region. <clears throat> uh, he comes quite a distance, <clears throat> and so... So he would be visibly recognized as not being a resident of Jerusalem, or maybe people had that assumption when he showed up at the temple, and yet he went. But his being a eunuch, having been castrated, explicitly in the law, even if he was a Jew, there would be limitations on his worship. So here's somebody who, who comes to the temple, and we don't know his experience. He may, have, he may have been so grateful just to be there that he didn't feel like an outsider. He may have just assumed he's an outsider, but was grateful for whatever he had. Uh, but he also may have showed up and just felt, I, I don't belong here. There's a court of the Gentiles that, that I'm able to enter into, but I, I can't go beyond that. And so we don't know exactly what his experience was uh, in terms of his own personal experience, but, but, but we know that, that he's described in a way that signals to us uh, he, he didn't fully belong. Uh, 
And so there he is reading the scriptures and in God's timing, and often as God works redemptively, how long had he sought God? How much had he read? We don't know any of these things, but we know as he gets to the 53rd chapter of Isaiah, um, at that time, God sends Philip a messenger. Do you understand what you're reading? And, and this is where in the messiness of life, we can't make sense of what God is doing. But sometimes God does something in a particular moment that pulls things together. So here's a guy, whatever his experience, we don't know. It wasn't recorded for us. Whatever his experience is, he's reading Isaiah 53, and he can't make sense of it. What is this about? And the explanation then would be something that would help this particular individual see why the good news is such good news. And I'll read just verse 33 from the portion that he had read uh, of, of Isaiah 53. Uh, speaking of Jesus now, which is what Philip explains to him, in his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation? For his life is taken away from the earth. A description of a generation who rejects the righteous. <laughs> Isaiah is telling a story of, of a time when God will visit his people. And Isaiah 53 says, what is the nature of the generation that when Jesus comes, when his servant comes, his people don't receive him with joy, but with injustice, they humiliate him. And I don't know if the eunuch felt humiliated at all showing up at the temple. <laughs> um, you know, men those days, if you were circumcised, that signaled you were an insider. Uh, think about that connection. Uh, could a castrated man ever be circumcised? Um, I don't know how he felt in relationship to God or to the temple, but in, in the corrupt ways we use power in our world, there's something terribly unjust about castration. And so, so here's a man who is, is drawing near to God, and he can't make sense of things, and it's clear he doesn't belong. And then he reads about Jesus who comes to his own people, and is denied justice, and he's humiliated. And, and, and this is one of the reasons that, that the gospel always speaks in a unique way to people who, who don't just want to get their lives together or people who are working for, who, who want to be religious, but people who are wrestling at such a deep level with the mystery of God and the profound nature of life and all of our imperfections and misunderstanding, that there's something about Jesus that not only does he give us answers and help us, but but rather than alienating us and further humiliating us, he shows us that his humiliation and alienation is even greater. And that, that comforts, that, that draws us in. And, and it doesn't make us have somebody that just helps us gripe together, but, but it redeems, it heals. And so, so the question that the eunuch had in hearing the good news, verse 36, see here is water. Now this is interesting. So they're in a desert place. <laughs> And in God's plan, you know, the chariot's moving as they're having this conversation. I know have no longer ha how long the conversation was, but, but they began meeting in the desert, and, and there God provides water. And as they're talking, his question, see here is water. What prevents me from being baptized? And what a helpful way to put it. Given that his experience would have been at the temple, what, what prevents me from going beyond the court of the Gentiles? Well, do we need to explain it to you? Uh, hear his question that he's heard the gospel, what would prevent me from being baptized? A sign that the spirit is poured out and God comes to his people, he cleanses them. A sign that you're brought into Christ in his body, what would prevent me? And the answer, of course, is, is nothing. Nothing. Why? Um, because Jesus, who was humiliated, uh, Jesus, who was treated unjustly, Jesus, who was rejected by his generation, is now the one who 
begins a new generation, the generation of welcoming the broken and the hurting and the outsiders. I had read something um, some years ago that struck me, and I'm going to share that. But before I do that, let me, let me just say this. If, if Isaiah 53 had the, the power it would have had in this man's life to, ex- to start to bring the scripture together, then when he continued to read Isaiah, he would have understood. Now I understand what's going on. So he's reading Isaiah 53. He's gotten that far. Isaiah's a long book. Have you ever read from the beginning to 53? That's pretty commendable that he's read that far. It wouldn't be long until he gets to Isaiah 56. (laughs) And now that he understands the gospel, now that he's been baptized, this is what Isaiah writes in Isaiah 56, 3 to 5. Let not the foreigner who has joined himself to the Lord say, the Lord will surely separate us from his people. And let not the eunuch say, behold, I am a dry tree. For thus says the Lord to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbath, who choose the things that please me and hold fast to my covenant. I will give in my house and within my walls a monument and a name better than sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. Here we read this story and wonder, what is his name? And there's all these figures that that are unnamed, the Samaritan woman, the Ethiopian eunuch. The Bible tells us that they have a name known by God that's better than their earthly identity. And he says to this eunuch, who thinks I'm a dry tree, see, there's no generations, there's, there's no passing on your name. In an ancient culture, that's how you got eternal life, through your descendants. And now the world is ordered so that you could be a man of prosperity and wisdom and talent, but there's no name to pass on. And God says, within my walls, I will give a better name. I will give an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. And what a helpful way of speaking to a eunuch. <laughs> Do you feel like you've been cut off? But you will never be cut off if you've joined with God. And think of Isaiah 53. What is the nature of the servant? Who is the servant? The servant is the one who will be cut off. (laughs) And when he's cut off, by his grace, you will be brought in. And once you're brought in, you're given a name, known to God. And then you'll never be cut off. And so what would that do for the Ethiopian? Um, that is the heart of the Christian message. And the community that has the word in the spirit is a community that should welcome all. And so there was this, this book I encountered some years ago, and uh, there was a passage that stood out to me. So it's a book of photojournalism, guy who left his Wall Street job to take pictures and tell stories. And he wanted to focus on drug addicts, but that wound up having him in a poor community in the South Bronx, and then he wound up elsewhere. He took these photos and told the stories, and, and, and it, what this passage jumped out at me, and what interested me is, as far as I know, this guy is an atheist. He doesn't believe in God. So he tells a story that I think speaks well of the church, but this is not Christian propaganda. This is not me telling the story to try to say, look how good the church is. But here's a guy who's trying to hear the stories of the struggling, um, and this is what he writes. He says, in the midst or in the minds of many back row Americans, the only place on the streets that regularly treat them like humans, that offer them a seat to sit in, an ear to listen, and really understand their past are churches. They're everywhere. Small churches that have come in and taken over a space and lighted up on Sundays and Wednesdays. They walk inside the church and immediately they meet people who get them. The preachers and the congregants inside may preach to them, 
even judge their past decisions, but they don't look down on them. They've walked the walk and know the stuff they're going through, not from a book, not from a movie, not from an article, not from a study, but from their own life or the lives of their friends. They look like them and they get them. There are rules to follow if you join, but they don't require having your paperwork in order, having proper ID. They don't require getting grilled about this and that. They say, enter as you are, letting forgiveness wash away a past that many want gone. You are welcome as long as you try. The churches understand the streets, understand everyone is a sinner and everyone fails. In their mind, the rest of the world, the courts, the hospitals, the rehab clinics, the welfare office, police stations, and even some of the nonprofits and schools, especially the universities that don't even let you on campus without the police being called, doesn't understand that. That cold, secular world of the well-intentioned is a distant and judgmental thing. That world has given them seemingly nothing but pain. And what's so striking to me is here's a guy that's hearing the stories again and again, and he's saying there are all these resources in this wonderful secular city where everyone wants to bring change and care for the poor. And he's saying, but consistently, the people that are really broken, they don't feel humiliated or looked down on when they come into the house of God. Question for us as a church. People say that when they come to Emmanuel. And, and I think they do. And, and we are not perfect as a church. But I think we know the story of Jesus. And when we keep his story before us, and when we pray full of the Spirit and we open the Word, boy, we have a lot of growing to do as a church, but, but those imperfections are overcome when people who come to Emmanuel don't see us, but they see God. And, and that's what we're looking to do, to be a community of the Word and the Spirit so that anybody coming could come as they are and be told that they could be somebody better. Not because we have set a standard for them to meet up to, um, because that's the nature of the grace of God. And so, uh, here's a fourth component of this redemptive story. God sends joy to a people. One of the things I've been trying to highlight for us as, as we're looking at these stories is God, God works in the lives of individuals in very specific ways to them, their story. The scripture was good for the eunuch at this time. Philip came, the right guy, a deacon, to care for this person. And yet, the eunuch story has a backstory, and we don't know it all. <laughs> but you go back to some of the things I alluded to before. Uh, the story of the Queen of Sheba. This was, this was in the days of Solomon, a thousand years before the eunuch. You read in First Kings, uh, this woman from Ethiopia, a queen, shows up in Jerusalem, and she says, we've heard... <laughs> of your God and your people. So she didn't travel to Jerusalem <clears throat> randomly or on a political thing and be like, wow, why are, why are things so great with this new temple and the wisdom of your kingship? She came having heard of the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. God had already somehow gotten word out there and she shows up and she's so impressed with Solomon's wisdom and the glory of the temple and what God was doing at this, this climactic time in the lives of his people that she says, I'm going back to tell people that, I'm telling my people that, your God and, and this community is even greater than we thought. So 
so how was that story preserved among the people of the Queen of Sheba? I don't know. If you read modern Ethiopian history, fascinating religious story going back to that time and before. But whatever the case is, the Ethiopian eunuch, why did he go to Jerusalem? Well, we don't know, but, but there were at least a thousand years ago, word on the streets that if you go to that temple in Jerusalem, you will see something glorious, wonderful. And so when the Ethiopian goes to Jerusalem, there's already a story at work. And when Philip goes and speaks to him, he's not simply making this man a full member of God's people through baptism, but, but he's sending this man back to tell the climax of the story. He's going back to a people that, that know about the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and the glory of the worship, and they know that they're outsiders, but, but now they're told good news is going out to the ends of the earth. And so Isaiah 53, questioning this generation, the generation that would reject Jesus, Jesus himself knew that the generation would reject him. And he spoke about it. Here's one of the things he said. So Luke, again, Luke wrote the, the same book of Acts. Luke eleven thirty one. Jesus says this, the queen of the south, the queen of the south will rise up at the judgment with the men of this generation and condemn them for she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And behold, something greater than Solomon is here. And so what is God doing in the life of this person? He's sending them back saying, go tell your people something greater than Solomon is here. The one not who builds with earthly wisdom, but the one who is cut off and yet is raised up and is now bringing the worship of God to the ends of the earth. And so we have this description of this eunuch, verse 27, he's a court official of the queen of the Ethiopians who was in charge of all of her treasure. So, so he's literate. He could read. He, he owns a scroll in an ancient culture. That's, that's very odd. He's going back. He has the voice of the most powerful woman. He's, he's a cultural influencer. And yet he's also an outsider. <laughs> what a perfect man to come and announce the king who was rejected, but who now sits in the heavenly realms. He comes and announces the climax of the story to say to a people who for thousands of years who have heard of the glory of God, that now they're invited to worship that God, to be called by his name. And they're included. And so in verse 39, when Philip disappears, because I'm sure he had a lot of other questions, but at that point, he had enough. Verse 39, the eunuch saw him no more, and he went on his way rejoicing. And I think his going on his way is an important part of this redemptive story, that now he brings the joy of the good news with him, as he goes, and he will go and announce good news that uh, God is coming to all nations. You know, where this story comes in the narrative of the book of Acts is actually really helpful, and it seems strategic, and it seems important even as we think today about understanding how we think about God and his people. It's Acts chapter 9, the next chapter, where Saul converts and becomes Paul, the missionary to the Gentiles. So the gospel is going to go to the ends of the earth through Paul, but, but Paul is right now a persecutor, not a friend. It's a couple of chapters later where Peter has this vision that tells him that the gospel is for all people, but Peter's not yet had that vision. So before that happened, before Paul goes to the Gentiles, before Peter knows that, that everyone is welcome, the gospel, the, the finish of the story is announced in Ethiopia. And I think... 
given the way we're talking today about who belongs in the church, who has the rights to ownership of the church, seeing this little thing God did and the timing of God is helpful as the American church is grappling with questions about race. And, and we're asking the odd question, is, is Christianity a white person's religion? And how do we make sense of that? And, and here we're told that Christianity was African long before it was American. And so we have to ask, how did we get to the question, how did we get to the point in church history where a group of American Christians, the question we're grappling with is, is this Christianity for black people or who's in charge of the church? And, and it says something's, something's wrong in the community. We're, we're not living according to the word or we're not full of the spirit or we're, we're dividing up and being broken as a community. And the lesson we learned from the Reformation is that the Reformed Church is always reforming. And how do you reform? You open the Bible back up and you pray that God would fill you with the Spirit. And you talk amongst yourselves and you say, Lord, where have we strayed? Where have we gone wrong? Because we want truth. If, if the church is communicating to black people, you don't belong or you belong in some marginal way. Talk about a falsehood. That's not true. We, we can't allow lies to continue woven into the, the nature of the church. And so... So have we closed the Bible as we talk as a community about how to solve the problems of society? We need to be a community that says we are not going to solve the problems unless we get back to the Redeemer, the one who was rejected through injustice, the one who was cut off by his generation, but, but who gives a name and seeks after and explains and gives understanding. And so if there's hope for us to, to, to repair where we have damaged the church, it will come through our being a community that seeks to be full of the Spirit and who's carefully studying the Word. And when that happens, things change. You know, I'm, I'm going to end. Um, I, just, I was struck by the story that, that Hannah shared about Heather, this, this woman, life imprisonment. I don't know much more about her story. But it's always remarkable that, that God can do things like when somebody's imprisoned for life to help them to experience a greater freedom that many people experience in the world where they are free to make a lot of decisions, but, but don't ever really feel free. And so I don't know how God did it, but here's this collaboration between a, an incarcerated woman and somebody on the outside to do something so that a message would go back to the people on the inside. But here we are today that God used somebody from the inside to bring a message to us. Uh, we who are struggling because we're confined to our homes because we're working from home and we're discouraged and we're wondering, is there anything good going on? And here's a woman with life imprisonment who has seen God's redemptive work in her life. And she writes a poem. And I'm going to close with the words that we heard uh, from that poem that remind us. Uh, this is what she wrote. So I looked for the gifts each day. I look for the gifts each day brings. Even in this dark place, I can find them. He is always here, right beside me crying with me and carrying me home. Let's pray. Our Father, when we see your story, it's, it's not about us and our failings. It's about you who go to dark places, you who go to the desert, you who go after confused, broken people, and you tell them good news. You tell them good news about the, the Christ who is broken, but also about the healing that you'll bring to us, the change you'll bring to our lives. And Lord, we long as individuals 
to know this redemption. We long as a church to, to be filled with your spirit and to be in line with your word and to be a place that the rich and the poor and everyone in between could come and know that you welcome sinners and you bring change to lives. And so, Lord, as we consider these things, help us to see Jesus this week. And we pray that uh, the struggling in our midst would be encouraged, that we would have the joy the eunuch had, and we also pray that we would be those who speak not of our joy, but speak out of our joy, of the joy that bears witness to Jesus. Lord, um, be at work in our church, especially the hurting, the struggling, or, or those who are wandering the furthest. Do something redemptive today, and do something glorious in the upcoming weeks as we continue to struggle in this season. We pray these things through Jesus' name. Amen.